Hello and welcome to the Connection Podcast with Connect Global. This is a segment we're calling Global Neighborhood, a conversation with our friends and partners in order to share a global perspective of what's going on in our communities, our nation, and around the world. Dr. Harold Durrell Briscoe is a writer, speaker, pastor, and public theologian. He focuses on the intersectionality of race, religion, law, and power. He is married to Tracy and a father to Luke, Noah, Amelia Hope, and Ella Grace. He is a 2007 graduate of the University of North Florida, where he earned his bachelor's degree in political science and history. He is a 2009 graduate of the George Bush School of Government and Public Service at Texas A&M University. There, he earned a master's degree in public administration with a concentration on urban planning. Durrell worked in local and state government for five years across Florida, Texas, and Louisiana. Durrell also taught at the university level as an adjunct professor teaching public administration, management, and leadership to undergraduate students. While teaching, Durrell pursued and was awarded a master's degree in theological studies at Liberty University in 2015. Durrell finished his Doctor of Ministry degree at Duke University in 2017. He has a strong passion for the local church, politics, racial justice, equality, and international affairs. He is the founder and lead pastor of the 6-8 Church in Durham, North Carolina. 6-8's vision is to build a gospel community that is intentionally diverse, cross-cultural, and neighborhood-centered by engaging and developing ministries in downtown Durham and the high T community. So hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Connect Global's podcast. Uh, today, we are joined by my friend, Dr. Harold Durrell Briscoe, and it is a real privilege for us to have him on this call and to learn from him, and um, hopefully we will kind of move the needle in the conversation of America during the times of racialized crisis. So welcome, Dr. Durrell. Yes. Thank you very much, hey, guys. Thank you, man. We are grateful that you were able to jump on. Um, I know that you're very busy. You have a lot of uh, uh, things that are going on. You're a pastor. Mm -hmm. uh, you just authored this book, I think last year, came out in May. Mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. we definitely want to jump into your book quite a bit. Yeah. Um, but we, we are just grateful and honored that you would spend some time uh, kind of chatting about this because for us, for Connect Global, our main purpose is wanting to uh, be strategic, be uh, sort of uh, not reactionary, but sort of being trying to uh, you know, see the future and see where we can uh, right. bring people. I'm sorry. I was saying right. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So we just want to bring people into a place of awareness of what's going on, of the things that are going on around us. Um, you know, we say it at Connect Global all the time that uh, compassion without action is just observation. That's something that we kind of live by where we, we, we see things, we are moved by things, some things are emotional, some things are tragic. Uh, and, and unless we make a move, yeah. unless we make a, a, a consorted action towards that trauma or towards that tragedy, so uh, we, really, we really aren't actually doing anything. We're actually doing worse. Yeah. Um, and so we wanna give you an ample opportunity to <clears throat> just jump right in and, and help us understand this conversation yeah. uh, around some of the things that have been going on. Um, I think your book provides a great template. We've started it. Danielle crushed it immediately. Uh, I have started it. It's amazing already. Um, understanding the analytical side of this, um, but also bringing in the heart side of it. So I just want to give you some time 
uh, I'll get, uh, defer yeah. to you uh, and and help us understand where we're at. Yeah, and just right to on. give a little well, background for anyone listening in or watching, um, Dr. Durrell and I met a long time ago at a church in Jacksonville. Yeah. So that's our connection and how we know each other. Um, and you know, he's since gone on to have this amazing life and has a heart for his community and his people there in North Carolina and also uh, is a Duke graduate and did his thesis on, you know, the racialized crisis in America. And uh, so we, we just <clears throat> don't have a lot we can learn. And so that's why we've invited you to be on and we've invited our listeners into this conversation. I'm so happy to be here. I really, really am. Um, I, I am so grateful for this opportunity. Obviously I, I watch you guys from afar I'm so inspired by your life and your ministry um, and um, what you're doing in um, the community. Um, the, uh, it's, it's just, it's remarkable. And so thank you for all the work that you all have done. And, and I'm really glad to be connected with you. Thank you so That's much. Awesome. Dr. Briscoe, I just oh, yeah. want to echo with, with Javier and Danielle, thank you for sharing your time and uh, really insightful and I really enjoyed starting to dig into this book. <laughs> There's a storm coming. Really fantastic. Can you. you tell us a little bit about what prompted you to write this book? Um, what you know, what events happened in your life? What things were you seeing in our American culture, and what really gave you that uh, push to write this book? Yeah, um, two things that uh, that were very catalytic for me um, that provides the context behind the book. The first was uh, me as a 19-year-old kid. Um, uh, in my dorm room watching the news coverage of Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans that occurred in 2005. Um, I was an international studies major. I was on my way to working for the State Department or the CIA or something abroad yeah. and being really, you know, somewhere, you know, and, and, and all of a sudden when I, when that event occurred, when I saw the, um, the amount of destruction and death uh, in an American city, a great American city, I just, I just was shocked. I couldn't believe it. You know, I, I could not believe that we had such a failure of leadership on all levels of, of government that occurred. And so I promptly changed my major and I moved, uh, after graduation, moved to Texas to get my master's in public policy. And then I moved to Louisiana to do recovery work, economic development work just to be in the state and because I just felt so moved by that crisis. So the first one was just seeing like, you know, what's the lesson that we learned in Katrina, right? I mean, we all know it's, it's we were not prepared, right? right. The levees were not prepared. We did not yeah. have an action plan. We did not have it. There's no reason why that amount of people should have died, 1,833 people, uh, billions of dollars worth of damage. It was a, it, it, so the idea of a lack of preparation and mid and, and the concept of mitigation, which is the action of is the, the, the action of reducing the severity of something, th that was kind of like planted in my 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 heart, my mind for yeah. for years. And you know, I was do, like I did a climate change adaptation and natural disaster resiliency policy across coastal communities in the Gulf Coast. So, so number one, that number two, fast forward. Uh, nine years. Fast forward. Uh, yeah, fast forward like nine, ten years. Uh, 2014, 2015. I'm now. I, I did six years in public policy. I, I worked in in government, and then I got involved in uh, ministry. I, I, I moved back home to Jacksonville, Florida. Got involved in ministry, and 
2014, 2015, you had Mike Brown. Yeah. You had you had Eric Garner in New York. You had Emmanuel AME. Yeah. Um, you had uh, 2016, you had Philando Castillo in Minneapolis and Alton Sterling in Baton Rouge, which is, you know, so these events, uh, these, these, these uh, racial, and I call them in the book racial crises, were occurring in our social political climate, you know, several times a year. And it was producing this great amount of stress and disruption and protests and unrest and riots and i'm like what is going on and i was in this weird um place because it was all over the news and everyone was talking about it but on sunday morning or at staff meeting on monday nothing was said right the 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 church where i the, the place where i worshiped where i called home could not speak to the pain that I had and I was dealing with as a as a black man living in America. Right. And so I'm just like, man, this is why is everyone so silent about this? I don't understand. And so um that's what those that's those two things I think were the main catalyst in 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 writing uh the book. Yeah. And you talk about in your book um the American evangelical church kind of having a missing element um, of the practice of lament and practicing, you know, walking through grief and sorrow, even just as uh, an individual or with a community of people. And that was something in your book that really stood out to me um, because it was just like you were talking about being a truth teller. It was something that I recognized as truth as soon as I read it. You know, mm. as in the American mm. church, we're not very good, or even just as Americans in general, we're not very good at dealing with uh, pain or sitting in someone's suffering. Oftentimes we are so discomfort, you know, so uncomfortable with it that we just want to kind of shut it down and say, well, it's going to be okay. You know, it's all going to be fine. Uh, let's just focus on the positive. And so when you specifically address that in your book and you would I think you had referenced a professor um, Mm -hmm. there as well. And he has said that that was one of the main missing elements in the American evangelical church that just really resonated with me as something that, you know, should be involved in these conversations because I think you had also referenced the fact that we can't just jump right to reconciliation if we're not willing to um, sit in that pain and realize the suffering of people that are on the margins. And so if you could just speak to that a little bit. I was so moved by the book. Before you read my book, it was just not that good, to be honest with you. Yes, it is. It's very good. My book is very inordinately practical. It's very much like a manual. That's why it's so helpful. No, I appreciate that. No, Yeah, we need that. No, white yeah, people was, need that <laughs> we need someone to say here's how to do it yes. it was very much an action plan not yeah. a lot of fluff very direct I, yeah. I plan on writing a follow-up book to it a sequel to it awesome. called resting from the storm or resting in the storm awesome. and that's going to be a really a love letter to black people awesome and 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 and, and, and just to say hey okay because the first one the first book and i'm going to get to your point in a second the first yeah. book was all about uh, it was it was it was a letter to my my dear white brothers and sisters yeah. who I, you know who I love and who I I, I know um, uh, love Jesus love His Word love His people yeah. but for some reason um, uh, there's this deafening silence 
um, when it comes to uh, racism, systemic racism. Yeah. And so it was a letter as an action plan for them. The, the second one will be uh, a letter to, you know, encourage black people to how we can navigate emotionally, psychologically during these storms, because it's really hard for us. But basically to your point that when it comes to lament, I got that from, um, you know, I was very moved by Dr. Sung Chan Ra. Uh, before you read anything from me, please read everything from him. Because <laughs> he is phenomenal. Korean-American theologian, urban church planner out of Boston. Uh, teaches that he's a professor at uh, North Park Seminary in Chicago. Uh, he wrote a book called Prophetic Lament. Okay. I was so moved by that book. And it and it really, um, you'll see that theme uh, in my book as well. But yeah. essentially, he, he's saying that, you, Danielle, you were like, you know, we don't, as Americans, do well lamenting and, and, and sitting in grief with each other. We don't do that very well individually. And we definitely don't do it well communally, systemically, and corporately. Right. So, right. and that's because we have such a powerful, and Dr. Ra talks about this in his book, we have such a powerful narrative and mythos of American exceptionalism mm -hmm. and triumphalism. Yes. That is literally our national story. It yeah. is right. the story of we out of nothing, we birthed this incredible nation, we are now a superpower. So that 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 political narrative, that that ideology, I think even pervades the our theology, where yeah. we engage in this, like you know, we celebrate, we 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 proclaim God's victory. We and and um and I think that's all that that's important. That's incredible. I, I love celebrating. I I'm so grateful of the victory that God has given me. But I also know how important lament is to the heart of God. He wrote a whole book on it, called right. Lamentations, about, about a community together dealing with the grief and loss of what's happened to them corporately, not right. just to one individual. So right. you're right. I mean, it's, it's the first step um, with realizing, you know, with realization, we, we have to learn to, instead of seeking to provide answers or to provide some quick response what does it look like for us to not police people's tears but give them a shoulder to cry on exactly what does it look That's like powerful. to overflow with compassion and empathy so much where we say because we 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 never quite understand um um we never quite understand the shoes folks other folks are walking in right. i will never understand the grief and pain that other able people uh, uh, uh have to navigate through in our, right. in our right. totally, yeah yeah and and, and, and 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 when they bring up their frustration it can be easy for me to be defensive as a as a um you know physically abled bodied person but I've got to learn to hear and listen. So that that's at the heart of lament. It's here. Yeah. It's hearing. It's listening. And it's and it's and it's um and it's allowing someone to have the space yeah. to grieve. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Dr. Prisco, let's take that practical step because again, your book, as you've described, is very very practical, and and we really have appreciated that perspective. While we're talking about this idea of of lamenting, mm -hmm. and the separation of understanding of experience, mm. right? So I don't, I don't share the mm. same experiences that you shared as a child. You don't share the same experiences that I, I shared as a child. So although we come to a relationship with different experiences, 
what are some of the like real practical ways, maybe even in that moment, in that conversation or through the, the course of time of a relationship that we can participate in that lamenting together? I mean, how does that look for you in just a real practical level? Yeah, I think from an individualistic standpoint, one-on-one uh, with a person, I think that's, um, I, 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 I think that's having a uh, time, an intentional time where you're really just listening um, to someone's story and to the pain that they're walking through. So if you're gonna have coffee or a cup of coffee with someone, it, it, it's, it, it, it's coming in um, with a posture of humility and with a sincere desire to just want to learn and to listen right. and nice. not offer and you know and, and so i think from from an individualistic standpoint it's like i, I i'm just gonna i'm gonna listen and i'm gonna be there and i'm gonna pray with you and i'm gonna and, and i'm here i think from a corporate communal standpoint i think what does it look like in your organization in your church to um recognize the pain that a group of people are walking through and to create space in that service to contemplate, meditate, cry even, um, um, uh, to, to, to create that space to think about that pain. So I lead a multi-ethnic church in Durham, uh, 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 probably majority black people of color, uh, very few Asians, but uh, uh, Asian people. But uh, um, a couple of weeks ago, the Asian community, Ameri- Asian American community was crying out yeah. um, uh, in pain with different things going on. And so, and, so, uh, and so in our service, I made it a point to acknowledge the fear, the anxiety, the angst that our brothers and sisters were walking through and had a moment where we could meditate on that and, and, and really got asked God to break our hearts um, for what's breaking theirs. And so he's got these as being intentional and creating space for it, you know? Yeah. You had quoted um, Brenda Salter McNeil in your book. Um, she had said the realization phase of the journey involves more than the cognitive understanding. It is a state of awareness that requires a response because it literally changes everything we thought we understood about an experience. Um, and to me, when I read that quote, I just thought, man, this has to resonate with people because oftentimes we go into a conversation or we go into a meeting or we have this agenda already that's kind of worked up in our mind of, oh, I already know that. I already heard that story before, or I know, you know, what that must be like, but here's, you know, how we can move on past that. And it's, you know, with this quote that she said, just having to really understand that we don't know that experience is like so foundational to the healing process, I would have to imagine. It is, it, it, it is. And, um, and, and, it, and, it's, and it's tough for some people to get there because um, yeah. we have um, a lot of preconceived notions and ideas, yeah. especially in regards to race and yeah. racism and history in America. Right. Um, and so it can, it can be challenging, but, but again, it's, it's, um, it, it is, uh, it's so necessary for the healing and reconciliation, reconciliation process to take place when we have that space and place to lament and grieve with other people. It's, it's yeah. very critical. Yeah. Just in the vein of transparency, um, 
you know, Javi and I, we've been married almost 15 years now. And I didn't uh, know that we were in a biracial marriage until someone told me that because I never thought of it that way. Yeah, sure, <laughs> um, sure. But sure. one day we visited a church and the pastor came and spoke to us after and said he was so happy we were there because we were his first biracial couple. And I was really confused by the statement because I'd never really viewed our marriage that way. I just viewed our marriage as, you know, he's the person I love and he loves me and I really never thought of it. Um, so that was one particular instance where yeah. even the idea was implanted into my mind. And then since then, uh, Javier has helped me a lot over the years to understand a different perspective. And so I remember uh, very early on in our marriage, him talking to me about the fact that racism existed and I not even believing that it did. Like, I'm like, I don't even see that. Like, I don't even know. I don't feel that in my heart. Like that's done. That was in the old days. And he's like, yeah. no, babe, like it's happening today. And so he's brought me a long way in the journey to even yeah. have like the eyes to see it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and that was coming from a person who didn't have a bad heart towards it, but was so ignorant sure. to it completely, you know? And so I realized that a lot of people that are in my circle don't have uh, a husband like I do to kind of walk them along yeah. that journey. Um, but it's so important, I think, that just as people, we do bring people into the conversation because, you know, I, I was a pastor's child. I was raised in a, in a godly home. Um, all the things, my best friend in Florida was, you know, a black person, but I would tell him, you know, in these conversations, I'm like, I never viewed her as my black friend. She was just my friend. And he's like, that's okay. But like, she knew that people recognized her as that wherever she was. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. you may not have, right. yeah. but she does. You yeah. can ask her today, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so, yeah, um, sure. yeah it's, it's, it's important to have these conversations. It really is, you know, and, um, and, 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 and I think it, it, it have these conversations and, and like, like I said, to, 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 um have them in in a way that doesn't mean that you have to agree with everything but it does mean that you have to there should be a posture of humility where you're looking at these looking at a place where i'm like okay what do i like holy spirit like yeah what do i need to learn here right like what what am i missing here and and how can i learn and, and so yeah i think that's a it's just so important yeah and i think that's where like to danielle's point you know my experiences are somewhat limited but they're mine and they're personal right. and they were deeply hurtful at the times. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And so I have something to speak towards, yeah. but then also recognizing that everyone has their own experiences, um, hers being even more limited and exposure to that being almost zero, yeah. but her willingness and her, her ability uh, to get there mm -hmm. and to not just hear mm -hmm. new information and dismiss it as foreign and, you know, uh, not respond to that, but Danielle's growth over the years in this area specifically has been wow. like exponential because of her absolute willingness to say, okay, just because I do not see that, I didn't see it, I didn't experience it, does not mean it didn't exist. Yeah. And I think exactly. that in America right now, we're in a large place where, you know, you hear these characters on the nightly news that have their own show that say whatever they want to say, they're not, they're making mm. things up on the fly. Of and course, yeah. So many yeah. people are tuning in at night, hearing this, 
as right. truth. Yeah. As yeah, truth. yeah. And, and, and we have to be, you know, using our platforms, whatever they are, uh, social media or through, you know, if we lead churches or organizations, we have to put the pressure back on people to change their mind. We have to give. Well, them I love, I, I love, oh, Javier. That's so powerful because I'm like, it's so easy to get um, lost in an echo chamber. Yes. Where you surround yourself, you live in this information bubble where you surround yourself with folks that, uh, uh, um, that that essentially solidify and reinforce what you already believe. Right. Um, and and that can be problematic when you don't have a diverse uh, when you don't diversify your uh, your your sources and in any in any relationships, you know. Yeah. Um, and so yeah. Mm. You you lay out a principle in in the book tied back to your work in public administration, which I thought was a just such a, a beautiful connection and uh, of mitigation. So you talked mm -hmm. about your work in, in Houston and, and New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina of helping um, municipalities and cities and things like that build in mitigation infrastructures so that when the storm hits, then there's not the loss of life, there's not the destruction and things like that. And then you, you, you correlate that to the United States as a whole and to speak specifically into the faith community of taking action you know, I before the storm hits, so that there are those dynamics in place that when this this as you describe and, and I like the terminology the racialized crisis when this racialized storm hits, then those mitigation elements are in place already. Absolutely. And you say early on in the book the statement uh, you said realization is the key to unlocking action, mm -hmm. and to kind of piggyback on what what Danielle uh, had shared of, of her own personal experience I grew up uh, in a community in Georgia uh, that was the birthplace of Alice Walker the lady who wrote the color purple and mm. so the story that she wrote stems from the geography of the city that she was from a very small town it, it, it quite literally had the tracks through town mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. white people lived on one side of the tracks black people lived on the other side of the tracks mm -hmm. um that 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 was not proverbial that was the literal the literal tracks and mm -hmm. i grew up in that environment being very aware of the racial differences and racial tensions um but again thinking those were things of the past yeah. and, and, and so I, i'm saying this also to people who may be listening to this podcast or watching this episode who might say uh, well, okay, there's a there's a context of racism in the past in the United States, but we abolished slavery, we went through the civil rights movement, and so now everything is now everything's fine. Yeah. And this this statement that you made, I think, is so critical. Realization is the key to unlocking action. And you go on to lay out some very specific eight factors. You you describe the eight factors right at the beginning of the book that have had dramatic impact as you describe on the social fabric of america yeah yeah right on yes and so i i guess i would say speak to us a little bit for people who who may be lacking in the realization yeah because 
Mm. I think we can move from there's a storm coming to if we're watching the news, there's a storm pressing upon us like we're in the storm. Yeah. Uh, and, and I don't want to leave people in a place that's like, well, I didn't realize. So, so help us, yeah. help us gain a little bit of that realization. What are the things that as a, as a pastor in a multicultural church in the South, what are the things that to just be candid that your, your white counterparts aren't realizing? that we need to be aware of in reaching into the community in a, in a cross-racial uh, relationship building type of format. Yeah. Well, that's great, Travis. Yeah. I think I think the first is that, that they, um, what I've seen, you know, in, in regards to uh, my fellow white Christian brothers and sisters, even pastors, I have seen in the evangelical church and even main, mainline Protestantism, um, a denial of systemic injustice. Yeah. So, the, so folks know that folks can be racist. I mean, they, right. they they know that they got Uncle Buck or cousin cousin uh, Billy that mm -hmm. said the N word, and oh, and it, so they, folks know that racism, like people can like not like black people, prejudice. Right. They, they know that. What the, the it, it, we got it goes deeper though than that, right? I mean, right. Yes. It, and it's that, that that's not racism. We have to be on the same page of what racism is, the semantics there. Mm. Racism is prejudice plus power. Right. Right. I mean, uh, um, uh, what, what was it Stokely Carmichael said that um, if a white man had, if a if a white man wants to lynch me, that's his problem. If he has the power to lynch me, well, that's my problem. Right. Right. So, yeah. so, wow. so it's, right. So it's one, it's, it's, it's one thing that like, have prejudicial beliefs or biases. Right. We all have biases of and everything. Course. Yeah. It's another thing to have a, a power to implement those biases on a systemic level. And so yeah. a lot of times I've seen idea, I've seen a denial of systemic, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, it, racism that is embedded in structures and, and, and systems. Uh, and and, and uh, I, I also see, unfortunately, uh, a, a fixation on intentions over outcomes so we'll say hey you know yeah look we've had a black president or hey look <laughs> yeah. there's a black person in my church or i i you know my my dentist is black right we 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 yeah. we, we, we will we, we fixate on intentions but fail to see um real outcomes yeah. um that are continue to leave a group of people in a in a in a in a, in a uh, not so good place. So you said, what are some things that realization? What do we gotta? I, I, you know, it, I, I think that I think the biggest thing is we have to understand that that America's historical record on race is centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries deep. Yeah. And these centuries weren't just it. It, it these weren't just practices of, you know. Uh, white folks being mean to black people. These were policies. These were procedures written in legal code right. that caused black people, people of color, to live in economically depressed areas, to not have, to not gain proper educational uh, housing, uh, educational access, housing access. We think that legalization, so you just said it, Travis, civil rights movement, we abolish slavery. 
we think that legalization mm -hmm. somehow remedied right. Right. centuries and centuries right. of inequitable access. Right. Right. And that's not the case. Legalization, right. just because I now have the power to get a burger mm -hmm. at a restaurant, it doesn't, it, 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 or, or let's say, let's say my, my dad or my, or my grandpa, right. it doesn't negate policies right. that were put in place that left black people at a disadvantage. So for example, right. uh, I, uh, I've gotten to a, um, a conversation with um, uh, Tracy's family uh, about race and everything. And you know, I'm, I'm not gonna divulge where they stand, but we, we, we had, a, um, uh, we, I was talking to them about race and, um, and and one of our family members said, you know, I don't I don't see the big problem or I don't see the big issue. And, and I, I was like, okay, let's look at this example. Your father fought in World War II, correct? Yes, correct, okay. So when he got back from World War II, yeah. he had access to the federal GI Bill, mm -hmm. which guaranteed education access. He had access to FHA home loan mortgage, mm -hmm. uh, you know, low interest loans. Mm -hmm. Whereas my grandpa, who boldly and bravely fought in the Korean War, mm -hmm. when he came back to this country, he did not have access to the GA bill, yeah. GI Bill. He did not have access to the FHA um, uh, um, lo you know, Home uh, Loan Mortgage Act. Wow. And so these po government policies yeah. um, infused in uh, the middle class and built the middle class as we know. Right. And allowed the middle class to gain what? Equity. Yes. Right. And guess what? To pass that equity down to the generations. Yeah. That did not happen with, but in, in fact, FDR had to exclude black people from the New Deal programs to gain Southern legislature support for the pro, for the, for the program. Right. So I would say like, you have to understand that our historical record on race is centuries deep and legalization does, does not mean that we get, we somehow received equitable access to things. We are still at a systematic disadvantage, right? Yeah. Um, number two, I think you got to look at can present I, day. Can I, I add a can I add a, a, a caveat to that statement? Sure. You said the the racial inequities are centuries deep, and I would add because I think there's a lack of realization in the white community as a whole that not only is it centuries deep in the past, but it's current today. That exactly. there's a that there's a current uh, systemic continuation of exactly. these of, of of the very things that you're describing. And Absolutely. I think that's where some of that realization has to come into play. Some of that realization came into my life growing up in a community where I thought, I hate this history. Mm. Like, I, like I hate this yeah. racist history. Yeah. But it was later in my adult life that I realized that's not just history. That's still current today. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yep. Yeah, that, 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 that's exa exactly. Better job opportunities, better educational opportunities, better housing access. Right. The legacy of systemic racism is continuing to produce structural inequality from every aspect in, 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 in our lives, environmentally, right. educationally, health, public health. Look at the statistics. So this is the thing. The statistics don't lie. The math doesn't lie. So what you have to do is you have to blame lay blame these inequitable, I'm sorry, these um, disparities. Yeah. yeah. You have to lay the blame of that at the feet of marginalized people. Right. That's how we, and so what happens is we say, people deny and say that 
That's because they're what we, we've heard this before. They're lazy. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, they're 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 in a victim mentality. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they all they have just the same choices. Hard. Yeah. They all have the same choices. They all have the and so my, you know I've had people be like, well, Darrell, look at you. You made it, Darrell. Look at right. look, look right. at you. You did it. <laughs> and so you know so right and so it, it, we have to understand that that racist history has continued to leave a legacy in every aspect of a, a great example. And I would say, Travis, just to sum it up, 13th documentary on Netflix. Yeah. Um, by Ava DuVernier, which, which chronicles the history of mass incarceration in America and how that has been very racialized over the, de- not, not centuries, decades, right? Um, we're talking war on drugs with Reagan, um, uh, 1994 crime bill with Clinton. I mean, right, these are yes. right. 20, 30 years old that are still right. having right. devastating effects, yeah. Right. right. And you, you mentioned the, the war on drugs. I was reading some statistics just recently, uh, and, and we've read these statistics for years and years and years, but again, just, just, just knowing some of my own sort of upbringing and lack of realization and thought processes to say this out loud, drug use in the United States does is not different by race as far as statistical exactly. usage yes. but yes. the incarceration rate yes. for drug related offenses yes. is yes. significantly higher oh. Oh. Uh, in the black community in the latino community than it is in the white community so same levels of usage same levels of of crime yes. violation yes but extreme differences in level of criminal incarceration yeah. based upon race. Yes. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And that's is, that's not that's not, you know, a hundred years ago. That's twenty twenty four going on. Yeah. But it, it's right and it's decimated black right. communities. We, and right. we wonder where right. an, another uh, thing that we lay the uh, we lay blame at is uh where are the black fathers, where are the black men, right. where are the black the where the, they're all the well, well, when you have over policing in neighborhoods, yeah. when you have um, 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 a police cracking down inordinately in black right. and brown communities and locking them up, and then these men and women receiving these horribly harsh sentences right. and being locked up for decades, I mean, no wonder you're dealing with some of the, 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 the problems in, in these communities. So you're, you're absolutely um, right in that regard. Right. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's the issue right now that we see, uh, you know, because of course we have an organization that is missionally minded. Uh, we try and, you know, find ways in which we can right, uh, you know, these historical wrongs in certain ways, whether like in Honduras, we're working on poverty reduction or we're working on access to education or, you know, we're finding tools in which we can disrupt these historical ancestral sort of just yes. hindrances on uh, people uh, who've just never had that chance, never had those opportunities, never had access to that. And the bumps that we come up to time and time again are getting people to understand that their need is not just environmental for their moment, but that it was it was built in. Yeah. That because they were born in Central America or because we were born in you know Detroit or because we were born in you know, these different communities, we're seen as different. We're seen as mm-hmm. less than, we're seen as- Other. You yeah. know, uh, yeah. something other. And uh, getting people to truly understand that 
has been very difficult for us. It's been, you know, even with the immigration crisis uh, that oh, we've seen, yeah. you know, that we will describe that way, is described that way, yeah. um, you know, and us understanding the backstories there, mm. us seeing it on a, on a deep, not philosophical level, but a deep personal mm. level, where mm. we've held mothers weeping for their kids because they felt they had no other choice. When we hold their hands and pray with them because they haven't heard from their son-in-law who made the trek and made the journey and now is just there's there's no check-in there's no voice memos there's nothing and so we don't know where he's at and so when we see those personal struggles and the things that people are going through and and it turns from emotion to action for us and then we say hey let's go tell someone else about it and it's met with this sort of like blank stare or it's like oh well did you know that person personally you know if i if we if we see a news headline well did you know Mm. that one did you know that mother did you know that child that was separated at the border and i'm like no but i've met hundreds of others you know Mm. so if, if i didn't know michael brown or if i didn't know you know anybody on a personal level i've met them before I've mm. seen it before. I've I've held their hand before. I've hugged them before. I've hugged a mother after losing their son before. Yeah. So it doesn't have to be that particular person for me to be empathetic towards their plight, mm. towards their 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 journey. And how do we transfer wow. that to someone mm. else? How can I get someone on board with that okay. who's resisting? You know, because we have so many friends that literally, you know, even if they bring up something. We have a lot of friends that bring up these, you know, very divisive, very polarizing issues to us yeah. personally in, in, in personal conversations. And then we share our, our experiences and we share our uh, journey and, and, and kind of where we come in, maybe from a very different angle. And then it's like heels get dug in mm-hmm. immediately to resist mm-hmm. the change of their built-in bias yeah. because of this new information that I'm, you know, freely giving I'm not charging for my opinions at this point. You know, I'm, I'm giving it freely because they've, you know, freely communicated with me. And then it's just like this immediate, like, I just want to stop this for my discomfort, for my pain, yeah. for you to not confirm my bias is like turning my world upside down. And then we take a minute to breathe and say, well, imagine how they feel. Right. If I took your breath because of a comment that I just made, and yet here's somebody right. that we watched his breath leave his body for nine minutes yeah. on TV mm-hmm. over and over and over again. And not just him, but how, you know, every every couple of weeks we see something like that happen. Yeah. If it takes your breath away for me to talk to you about it, how do I get them to understand that it's mm. taking this huge community's breath away every time it happens? Yeah. Mm, wow. It, 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 what what a great what a great line and take, taking their breath away because it, it it is uh, so 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 gut wrenching and heartbreaking. Um, we especially as as, as, as African Americans, black, and I, and, I, and I can't speak for other uh, um, uh, uh, groups of color, but I know that there's a collectivity to our trauma. Yeah. That something can happen in Spokane, and we can yeah. feel it in Hoboken. Mm. Yeah. Something can happen in Seattle, and I can feel it right here in Durham. I can't. Yeah. First, that I think that's it. It re, that really got me. It hit me in 2016 
with Alton Sterling and Philando. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and it just, it, it, it was this internalization. And so you're right. And, and this is, and this is nothing new, you know, Javier, right. then, uh, Trevor, this is, uh, Martin Luther King said this in, in 64, 65, he said, whites, it must be frankly said, are not putting in a similar mass effort to re-educate themselves mm -hmm. out of their racial ignorance. Right. Wow. It is an aspect of their sense of superiority that the white people of America believe they have so little to learn. Mm. Right. And, and so we're, it, it, and even in the, even in the early 60s, Gallup did a poll. This was 63. Pollsters from Gallup went door to door and asked whites if they thought whites and minorities were treated equally in matters of housing, education and employment. This is 1963, okay? 66% yeah. of whites said yes. <laughs> they were being treated equally. Yeah. equally. In other surveys around that time, nearly 90% of whites believed that black children had the same opportunities as white kids when it came to education. Wow. Yeah. This was at the height of segregation, the height of back of the buses, Yep. Yeah. Color, color only, white only, uh, yeah. can't get a burger, uh, bombings in churches, yeah. dogs yeah. being sick and, and biting kids. And, and yeah. yet yeah. there still was that ideology. Right. And so, yes, we can educate. Yes, we can realize it also just, I think it just takes a miracle from the Holy Spirit too. Yeah. 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 I just think it's just, I, I think there's something to be able to educate and move people out of, because it's hard. It's, it's like, it, isn't this what Jesus calls us to this dying to yourself, right? right. A lot yeah. of times my, my white brothers and sisters don't want to hear this stuff because it attacks their identity of self-determination. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. yep. Right. It, it, that's why they, they cannot stand the term white privilege right because to them that denotes that says you somehow got it easy when they're which they're like are you kidding me i worked my butt off right. i did i worked 60 hours a week i grew up i i, I you know i i had nothing to eat when i was growing up. and we're not and I, we're not saying you didn't have it hard Right. We're saying from a corporate systemic level, black people in mass have had it, have been at a disadvantage right. when it comes to access and opportunities, educationally, housing, environmental, and you know, all, all that stuff. Yeah. And yeah. so, but how, yeah, guys, how nice is it to only be affected by the terminology and not the true effects of what that means? Of the reality. <laughs> Like to me, that's what blows my mind is that so many people get so erupted with anger or with, you know, uh, resentment at the thought of being labeled something, not even ever having really felt the effects of what that label means to most people. Right. And so to me, I, th I think that's where we're struggling to find yeah. people who are willing to risk loss or risk likability or risk mm -hmm. uh, uh public you know uh, fame maybe even yeah. you've talked about it in, in in part of the chapter maybe six or seven prophetic leadership you say that the church has to stand up you say that pastoral leadership must not be based solely on charisma energy or intelligence okay. right. mm -hmm. there must be a moral decisiveness that we have that compels us to speak and mm -hmm. act on truth 
whether it feels good or not and not be concerned with our likability. And I would also add also the fear of just not being liked at all, because that's Mm. the thing that we're, we're up against is that people are so concerned with their opinion marketing, Mm -hmm. you know, and it, and it, and it changes how they're viewed at the country club or it changes Mm -hmm. how they're viewed in the church service that they attend once a month, or it changes their, their, their aptitude. I mean, their, their, the attitude of people who look upon yes. them as a leader yes. because they're yes. you know, everyone's leading oh, in some some level. Yes. And so they don't want their leadership to be touched. They don't they that uh, that likability and money. Likeability is huge. You're right, because we, we, we yes. buy into this celebrity culture and that is very pervasive in the church as well. Yes. yes. So celebrity culture, likability, also money. I have had numerous white pastors say, you know what? It's good. I see it. I see your I see your pain. I get it. I know it. I mean, people see this stuff. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Bob Wood, Bob Woodward asked Donald Trump not two years ago, "Does systemic racism exist?" Mm-hmm. Yes, it does. And it's that the words from Donald Trump, the conservative senators, they, they know. know it exists. Yeah. It, it exists. So, so they people know this stuff exists. Right. The, the reality is, but it comes at a cost to do something about it and that's where we lack the political will that's where we lack the so in the church i have heard numerous pastors say you know i see it i get it but you know what if i if i say anything i'm gonna lose 30 percent of my tithers yeah Yeah. i'm I'm telling you they're like i cannot say anything because i will because there are movers and shakers around here and if i offend them with this then they're gonna leave and we can't yeah and, and they're like so i can't i can't i can't do it i can't do it yeah. well i would say for people who because there's still some people that pretend to us that they don't see it that they don't get it they don't see it and like i'm in the camp that you're in like <laughs> I, I don't how could that even be like real intentional but, ignorance yeah intentional, intentional now, we have, now we have to add liar to the it, column yeah. liar you can go either way yeah. and so for anyone listening in on this conversation if you fall in that camp of oh i don't really even think it's real and i don't really see it and i don't treat someone as an other and i don't think that as a american system we're treating people as an other um i can say practice what i've been practicing be a truth teller around your dinner table with your family and your friends and you'll start feeling like another real fast (laughs) you'll start they'll start letting you know oh you're not one of us anymore yeah that is true yeah that's how you can tell that's the litmus test yeah so if anyone out here that's listening thinks uh that they want to put that to the test yeah just even if you don't believe what you're saying try and speak for the for a person on the other side of things in your mind of someone on the other side and you'll you'll start being told real fast that you're an other in that circle yeah very well, and i think that feeds into this statement you said you said earlier dr briscoe you you use this terminology of a deafening silence yeah that when there are these racialized crises that happen then from the white community and specifically, if I remember correctly, you contextualize it in, in white faith leaders. Mm-hmm. There's a deafening silence. Um, uh, I think sometimes there's a there's a sense 
as a white faith leader of, I don't know what to say. I, I don't want to be patronizing. You know what I'm saying? I don't want to be insulting. I don't want to be patronizing. Right. Mm-hmm. I do not want to jump on a bandwagon that says we had an event so for the next 24 hours on social media i need to be relevant to the culture mm. i want my words to be integrous so I, I i think there's a heart change and then like what danielle and Javier were just saying there is a there is an intentional ignorance there's sometimes i'm just going to lie about it i'm just going to do nothing about it deny it so and deny it deny this exists um I don't have relationships, so I don't have a context in which I can relate. And so I've, but I have to be honest that maybe I've intentionally done that in my life that I haven't put myself in relationships with people of color to even know what's going on. So help us a little bit, speak to that a little bit. How do we, what, what do we say? What can be said? What's the right thing to say that, that, that gets rid of this deafening silence that would say, Dr. Briscoe, you're black, I'm white, but I'm willing to step into this pain and to actual change with you. Love that. Thank you, Travis. That's great. Yes. How do how do we respond? Yep. I mean, how do we because you're right, that's the big thing. Because there are a lot of there are a lot of good-hearted white faith leaders that want to say the right thing, that want that want to say something, that want to stand up, that want to um uh, that see that stuff's not right. Yeah. But they, they but but because of for for whatever reason, maybe they said the wrong thing at one time. Maybe they're afraid of saying the wrong thing at this time. They, they, right. they, you know, they they kind of uh, uh, you know fall silent. Um, I think there, I think a couple a couple things that we can do. We can defend and amplify black pain. Black pain. Yeah. We can defend and amplify black pain. And so what what that what does that mean? Like we can point out that our black sisters and brothers have been crying out about this for centuries for mm-hmm. de- for decades right yeah. and and all too often they um um the church historically has turned a blind eye and a deaf ear to their cries yes yeah. and so we say at my church or at this organization we are listening we are learning and we see yeah. We see. We see. It's not this whole we're colorblind. We don't see color. Right. We don't see no, 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 no. Mm-hmm. We see God's rich, rich yes. tapestry yes. Of, yeah. of, of of colors and His beauty of creation, right. and we right. recognize that uh, it's it, it, several of these colors um, uh, have the the image of God has been uh, intentionally attacked and, and yes. diminished right. by groups of people, and so. We as an organization, we are going to defend that. We're going to amplify that, and yeah. we're and that, that can be. I think, that, and I think that my, my, I try in my book to make it general enough for you to be where you are in your church. It, you know, yeah. I, I, it, yes, it was very um, practical, um, but I also hope it was general enough because the reality is, leadership is like a pressure cooker. Yeah. Too yeah. much. If, if, if you turn the temperature too hot, you're going to blow the pot. Yes. Yeah, but if you don't if you don't turn the temperature enough, you ain't gonna cook the food. You're not gonna get it. Yeah, you you gotta have wisdom in your organization with where your people are at, but also where you're trying to get them to go. Right. Yes, absolutely. So there has so, so that's so that's why I'm not saying like, man, you gotta say Black Lives Matter on social media. You gotta post a black square. You got. I'm not saying mm-hmm. you know that. What I am saying is 
you should be you, you should be judicious and you should be cognizant of the pain that black folks are dealing with people of color are dealing with yeah. number two i think it's we, we need to call out the very real reality and history ongoing reality and history of white supremacy and yeah. systemic racism yeah that stats you could and that's via social media you can post i had a a, a friend of mine uh, who is a pastor of a, a uh, a mega evangelical church in Jacksonville. Uh, this was several years ago, but he started posting stats yeah. of, of black people being incarcerated. But uh, and yeah. he he said immediately people thought that someone texted him and, uh, and said uh, in his congregation, "Hey, pastor, I think you your account was hacked." Oh, <laughs> wow. they, were like, they were like, "What? <laughs> I, I, I think he's been hacked." Um, oh yeah. my god. You are, but the re, but he's wow. like, no, I'm going to, that's I'm going to, I'm this, this uh, look at the, the statistics here. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So great. this is what we're in. And so we're, um, so yeah, I, I think those are two surefire ways we can respond when we say, listen, I'm, we are committed yeah. to listening, to learning, to doing right. the work and to allyship. Yeah. yeah. We're, we're committed. Yeah. Um, and, right. and I can't, and, 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 and that, that's for, for me, because you got some folks out there that are like the, you know, super woke weekend warriors who loved and revel and enjoy calling out white people who get it wrong. I, for me, I'm like, man, shoot, like <laughs> if you're in a war and we're in the trenches, as long as you're shooting that way sure. yeah. and not at me, yeah. I'm okay. Yeah. Like, and so, and so, and, and, and I don't mean to make that in, I don't mean to use that violent term, but, but essentially yeah. like, right. you know, Hey, are we on the same team here? Yeah. Right. right. And so I think you communicating that, I think it's very clear. That's a very powerful way to respond. And I know, I know we kind of have to wrap up here cause I know you're busy and you've already given us over an hour of your time, which we're very grateful for. Um, but there was one other thing that um, you had quoted, you had mentioned several times throughout your book, the author, Austin Channing Brown. Mm. And I had read her book, I'm Still Here. I had actually mm. read hers before I read yours, I think because I'd saw something you posted or somewhere of a, it was a recommendation. And so I had read that. Um, and I think it was in her book that she talked about the importance of bringing people of color to the table and in the mm -hmm. way of getting their perspective and their expertise and their knowledge and their mm -hmm. education. Um, because I think something that I have, uh, one, I have participated in and then two, I have now just seen because I can now recognize it, um, is that a lot of times in the white community, we interact with people of color in only in the lane of charity. Mm. So mm. we are comfortable in that environment as long as mm. there's still an elevation in position. Yeah. Right. Um, mm. And mm. and I can say in my childhood and those you know serving in a soup kitchen or different things, I never uh, cognitively thought of it in that way. I didn't think I was doing mm -hmm. something in like a sinister way or even putting myself up on a pedestal. But, right, yeah. but when your family is only taking you to environments with people of color mm -hmm. and you mm -hmm. are on a pedestal because you're the one that's providing the food right, sure. and they're the one receiving the food, that kind of puts in a little um, trajectory wow. in your mindset wow. of yeah. who I am and who, who they are. And so mm -hmm. I think that a lot of times um, the white community and Christians in particular think, oh no, I'm all good because uh, you know, my friend, you know, my daughter has a friend that's black 
and you know he he's from this or that neighborhood but we still allow him to be friends so you know so we're all good here yeah and i loved that she was so specific to say you gotta move past that if your only interaction with people of color is uh, in a way of charity or there's some sort hierarchy. of hierarchy and it's not yes. that we're trying to be peers and and not even sometimes peers but like i I'm need to learn you. from you yeah. like you have a lot yeah. you teach me right. um i just thought that was powerful and wow. it was like a light bulb moment for me definitely me too me, yeah. me too uh, it, it, that is a part that's that's what it looks like to decenter traditionally dominant voices and recenter voices on the margins. Right. So even for us as a multi-ethnic community of faith, black-led pastor, we're a United Methodist Church, and so the the, the denomination is is predominantly white, but we're we're we, you know we're we're very young multi-ethnic church. But I am very intentional about centering the voices of women, particularly black women. Yes. in our congregation awesome. because yeah. i'm like man patriarchy is real yeah masculinity is real in the right. church yeah so what does it look like for me to intentionally decenter myself and recenter so what, what i'm doing so again fixations on intentions over outcomes right right it's yeah. like no i can't just say like yeah like my best friend is a black woman you know you know keandra kiki you know because yeah. she's a part of our church I had to look like, what does it look like for me to preach instead of 90% of the year, 80% of the year, I'm preaching 60% of the year. Right. And then yeah. women of color are preaching the other 40%. Yes. Right. So I'm preaching 50. So I'm literally looking yeah. at my message. Count. This is just a small example, right? Yeah. I'm looking at my, my message count and I'm adding yeah. up the weekends and I'm like, nope, I'm going to make sure I'm pre preaching 50, 55, 60% of the time. And women of right. color, black women yeah. are because we need to hear those voices and so you're right we have yeah. to recenter um these these voices and, and and we have to be intentional this is the thing too and i'll say this we, we a lot of times we can approach um people of color from a hierarchical standpoint and when things happen in our social political climate in the fabric of our of our of our of our society um what i've seen in churches is they will rush to get a black person on the stage to talk about their pain sure yeah Right. And, I, and I used to be like, man, that's good. That's so important. Man, I love that right. they're doing that. But as I've grown, I've, I've, I've realized I'm like, I don't know how healthy that is because right. because if if right. it's not, I think it's important to do, but I don't, if it's not coupled with a commitment to institutional change, yes. yeah. right. I don't know how, Ben, I think you're, you're still um, just getting into a very interpersonal because yeah. like, what happens is like the black person will will share some harmful story of what happened to them and yeah. and people will feel really sad and, yeah. and, and, and 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 I think again I think that, that, that I think that's good to center black pain but I think that we have to make sure as organizations as as you know as as, as churches what are we doing to reflect the institutional inclusive inclusivity um that is needed um um uh you know that is, that's needed and, and right. so um like i said for, so for me for our, us our board is predominantly women of color yeah. uh, i think i think it's four women of color three men or something like that you know uh, yeah. preaching to, we have two teaching pastors that are women of color black women so again so I'm, what does it look like to have to consistently hold your institutional your institution accountable i'm sorry right. Um, right. To, to include include not just diversity, 
not just number. See, a lot of organizations, and I'll close with this, a lot of organizations love to have black and brown faces around. Right, yeah. right. But they are, but they do not want to hear those black and brown voices. Exactly. Right. The faces are, are, allowed to be proximate as long as they are palatable right. to the status quo. Absolutely. Right. But when those voices start speaking out, that's when it's a problem. So yes. what what does it look like for us as organizations, as leaders? And again, I'm, I'm right here. I'm leading. I'm trying to ask this all the time. Like, Darrell, what are you doing to, um, to, to be, uh, uh, to be educated and for your organization, for your church, to hear voices of, of of people who are on the margins right. and everything. What does that look like for you? And so, yeah. I think that's that's heavy. that is heavy right there because I think many, many people are willing to allow someone to use, or maybe not even use, but even just to be at their platform, but mm -hmm. it's still only maximizing their influence yeah. their own so influence, true right yeah so that so yeah. it's like what you said you know it's almost like a parade of okay let's bring this we're not really recentering the voice towards them i'm just amplifying my own voice yeah. as mm -hmm. someone who's inclusive right. and so i think that's another big difference where we've got to really differentiate between are we truly including people in our power and influence yeah. when you have it or are we only allowing them to abide next to it because wow. I think that's a big difference. There's yeah. something there that big we have, difference. We yeah. have to yeah. separate those two, and we have to actually elevate people, not just sort of like mm -hmm. invite them. Yeah. Um, and so mm -hmm. I think that makes a big difference. Um, and I know, uh, you know, thank you so much. We have yeah. had so much. We kind of ran the gamut, and we kind of touched on a oh lot of areas. Yeah. Each one of these little microseconds, yeah. we could probably do a whole podcast on uh, on yeah. each of these moments. Yeah. So I don't want to take anything away from that but I am encouraged yeah. because I hear that all of us have work to do. Yeah. All of us can start somewhere. Yeah. We don't have to start with the heavy lifting. I uh, mentioned earlier before, I, I, I acknowledge and respect <laughs> your, your power lifting, but you, I could not go to your gym today. I could not go to your gym today and lift what you're lifting. Yeah. I can admire right. it, I respect it. I, I see where you're at and I see the work that you're putting in. But if I'm ever to move the needle on getting to where you're at, yeah. I have to pick up the weights at some point. I have that's to right. start somewhere, right? I have to start where I'm at. Right. And I think right. that's encouraging. So even if this this content was heavy, and a lot of it that mm. we touched on is something like we talked about, where it's it's going to put a lot of people in a very tense, yeah. nervous mm -hmm. place to hear this. Right. Um, mm -hmm. But we can start somewhere. I can go to the gym with you, and I'm not going to lift okay. where you're lifting. And I don't I don't need to even think that I can. But if I go alongside you and you yep. teach me and you instruct me and you show me the proper form and, and the format in exactly. which to do that, yeah. I can start to move towards that direction. Yeah. And I think that's what this podcast is going to be about. The legacy of this conversation will be yeah. that we all have somewhere, some work to do, and we can all start somewhere. And I just appreciate you guys. This has been one of my favorite podcasts to be on because normally I'm like, hey, talk about your book. And I'm like, okay, well, you're 22 minutes and then go. <laughs> I just love, it has been so refreshing to just interact and to flow and bounce off of each other. So yeah. thank you for this, for a conversation. I mean, no, yeah. obviously I am very grateful anytime I'm allowed and I'm invited to speak because for so many years I was silent. 
for so many years, I was, I was, you know what, Darrell, we don't need a politician. We need a pastor. Darrell, people don't need wow. to hear about that stuff. You're silent. Darrell, yeah. don't say anything about that stuff or you're going to get fired. Like, yeah. so yeah. again, I am very grateful to, yeah. to be able to share my work, but I'm, I'm even more grateful when I can have uh, just a wonderful, robust, a uh, conversation that, that that where you bounce and you flow and you uh-huh. hear your you know you know so thank you so much for this thank wonderful you. conversation. We had a lot of fun. Yeah, we all learned a lot today. I know that. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> you took us to class, man. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I really appreciate. I have to say, I really appreciate your candor. Yeah. In, in both the book and the conversation. Yeah. Because, mm-hmm. you know, we, we 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 hold ourselves in in our relationships. Uh, to be open and honest with one another, and to be and to be candid with with one another, and uh, so it's refreshing for us. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. refreshing for us to 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 mm. to, to kind of walk through this conversation with uh, with an open heart, yeah. because we get it. You know, yep. as much as we can, we mm-hmm. get it that mm-hmm. for you to start sharing your heart, um, we don't know what's there. Maybe there's joy, maybe there's pain, maybe there's, mm-hmm. you know, who knows what those historical, those life change, you know, we all have those moments where it's like this, this, this one moment right here that I can't tell anybody about, but it changed the trajectory of my life. Yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, so I, I just really appreciate um, you taking the time to spend with us and uh, to graciously have this very candid conversation with us. It's very meaningful. Absolutely. Um, we're it's never been it's you. never been our desire to create the context that you described a moment ago where mm-hmm. there was mm-hmm. a there was a George Floyd event mm. and then the white guys put a black guy on stage. Yeah. That's mm. never been our our heart or our intention, mm-hmm. but our heart mm-hmm. and our intention has always been how do we have conversation that mm-hmm. actually is healthy? Mm. Uh, for everybody involved, and then if people happen to have the opportunity to listen into that conversation, then mm. it's healthy for them also, yeah. mm. because the in, a, the intentional ignorance mm. and the intentional lack of realization, just because we want to have blinded eyes, or just because mm-hmm. we're going to say I'm going to be blind to this issue, mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I can say at least for our family, which I'm very proud of, we have said. We're not going to mm-hmm. stay in that place any any longer, mm-hmm. and um, so I just I really appreciate. Well, that. I just I just I really appreciate you guys because it just this is this what this is what gives me hope, and this is what keeps me this is what keeps the the the, the wood on the fire, you know, the gasoline yeah. in the tank. Yeah, is, is when I see uh, white folks, well-meaning, just like, hey, we're gonna we're with you. We're we're and I don't have everything, and I can't, and I may not explain it, but I see it, I hear. It. That's what just, it, it is just so life-giving and it's like, it helps you breathe a big sigh of relief because you know that there are folks out there in the trenches having those conversations and pushing the conversation yeah. forward. So I, I am just so grateful to y'all uh, awesome. for your bravery and your boldness. Um, and, uh, and, 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 and yeah. Awesome. Well, we are definitely looking forward to 
uh, the next release, the next yes. book. Yes, uh, I yeah. Got my, I'm yeah. Buy working on it. Books. Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe anonymously send them to some friends and, uh, <laughs> and boldly send them to some Two other Two books said. We're going to send them yeah. both. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to send them both, uh, you know, yeah. uh, because it is important. It is yeah. important to get this conversation yeah. started in, in as many yeah. communities yeah. as possible. Yeah. And individually, we have a lot of influence. It's a lot yeah. harder to sit across the table with someone on an individual basis and have them lie to my face. <laughs> so yeah. we've got to get in that uncomfortable mm -hmm. stage yeah. of getting to people where they're at. Doesn't matter. They can, mm -hmm. you know, start yeah. lifting the five pounds, but we got to get to them. We yeah. got we got to make it to them and, and bring them along with us and bring them up in weight class as soon as possible. Yeah, absolutely. I love all your powerlifting examples. <laughs> <laughs> I had to give you credit in there yeah, somewhere, man. Exactly. <laughs> He's stronger uh, than he gives himself credit for. I know. Yeah, I know. Uh, I'll say that. It's because I'm jealous. I want to go up there and I want to start with you, man. <laughs> Ooh. Awesome. awesome. Well, thank you yeah. so much. I know that yes. we, uh, yeah, we had you. a great conversation. So yeah. you are the man. We appreciate you so much. And uh, we are praying with you. We're yeah. still with you. Uh, you know, we're following along on your, your yes. journey as well. Yeah. Um, and hopefully we can have another conversation like this again yes. soon. Man. Absolutely. Hopefully, hopefully an in-person gathering soon. Yes. That would, that would yes. be really cool. <laughs> so cool. Yes. yes. All right. Well, blessings, y'all. Y'all take blessings. care. Say hello God to bless you. for us. Thank All you. Right. All right. Bye. Bye. Hey, thank you so much for watching. If you'd like to learn more, connect with us at connectglobal.org.